Well, good morning. Great to see you all. Uh, let me pray as we dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you might let this time be a great blessing to your people. Uh, let it be that I speak what's true. Uh, let our hearts be um, moved to uh, receive the words you give, uh, see with clarity what you've done, and respond appropriately, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to show you a drawing, a drawing that's uh, done the rounds on social media. <clears throat> and it's a, not a particularly exciting drawing just looking at it at the moment, is it? But can you, can you all see that? Um, actually, I don't know whether you can or not work it out later. But uh, you can see there's a series of arcs that are running there. Down the bottom is the books of the Bible, actually. And on the left-hand side, left of centre is the Old Testament, right of centre is the New Testament. And what this is indicating is that there are... Uh, references from the old that run over into the new, that are picked up by the New Testament looking back at the old. Uh, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the new. There are allusions that are fulfilled. There are types that become anti-types. There are all these kinds of connections. Uh, and if you are unfamiliar, there's, that's the Old Testament, the first sort of two-thirds of our Bible, and the second last third is the New Testament. And all of this uh, is to say that this part, the New Testament, relies on that part, the Old Testament, and in quite a profound way, such that, uh, well, sorry, if you wouldn't mind just up a bit, such that you can see how much it leans on and fulfills and connects with the Old Testament. It is quite remarkable, it's astonishing, and it illustrates vividly how God has worked in the past and brought it to fulfilment in the future. Uh, so thank you for that. Now, you might imagine it could be possible for a modern author to write some kind of great work of fiction and do something similar. Do you know, over many years, kind of build up a prophetic expectation and then write with all these cross-references that go back to the old and to the previous piece. You can imagine that might be the case and say, well, that's not so impressive. Anyone could do that. Well, no, not anyone could, but maybe someone very clever could pull it off. But then bear in mind this... That might happen if one author had it all in mind and pulled it all together over a lifetime. But what you have in the Bible is 40 different authors writing in the Old Testament independently of the New, not aware and conscious of who would come centuries later, writing books that were independent of each other. In an astonishing way, they, in different regions and different places, spoke about what would happen in the future. So that the events of the future that are recorded in the New Testament, written by itself a series of different authors, independent many from each other, picking up and seeing the fulfilment of these things that have occurred in history. And they're not just vague, general... Do you remember Nostradamus? Does anyone remember that name from years ago? Not in some vague, general way that you can some squint your eyes and maybe manage to see that... No, no, in particular details. Where this man's born, how he would die, what would happen to him, in extraordinary details. Uh, what you see in the Bible is miraculous. It is itself evidence of a God who stands behind it. It's like no other religious document like no other document. Now, I mention all this for your encouragement. I hope it is some encouragement to you see the way this astonishing book works that can give evidence to a God who stands behind it. But I also say it to highlight something that I want to talk about with you this morning. I want to highlight how important it is to notice the connections between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, 
In fact, it's impossible to properly understand parts of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And this is exactly the case in the part of the Bible we've got set down to look at this morning in John chapter 1. We are now in uh, John's Gospel where John is recording for us the events of the life of Jesus. We've moved past the prologue, which was the introduction. We spent the last couple of weeks looking at that. Uh, a part of the Bible where John, the author, uh, is sort of telling us how to read these events that are going to come. You know, here's the way to join the dots. I'm going to give you a whole series of events, a whole narrative of what happened. Here's the way to understand it. That's the first 18 verses. Here are the themes that will emerge. Now John starts recording the events themselves. And what's astonishing here is that in verse 19, the first event he records, grab your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 19, the first event he records is the event of John the Baptist. Now, a different John, John the author, the apostle, John the Baptist. The first thing he talks about is John the Baptist and spends quite a deal of time looking at John the Baptist. Now, for most of us, that's kind of odd. In fact, the whole John the Baptist thing is kind of odd for most of us. I mean, we realise it happened, it's a piece of history, and John was a significant guy. But did you know that every gospel spends time on John the Baptist? Every ancient author that wants to give you the gospel starts with John the Baptist. Now, I know many of you have actually shared the gospel with lots of people. You, you, we are all keen to see people hear about the person of Jesus. How many of you talk to your friends about John the Baptist? Yeah, the laughter says it, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, that's just not been top of mind for us. And in fact, there's gospel tracks, you know, those little summaries of the gospel. How many of you have seen with John the Baptist in them? Now, why is that? Why do we not think to talk about it, whereas the ancient world, they couldn't not talk about it? Every gospel talks about him. Right there is actually a key thing. When the Bible's seeing the world differently to us, saying things differently than we might, that's the place to press in and see why the difference. That's the place to learn and grow. So why? Well, there's a few reasons. First, because John the Baptist in his day was huge. He was massive. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, in fact, says of him that of uh, anyone born of a woman, which is pretty much everybody, yeah, anyone born of a woman, there is no one greater. This is, says Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest living human in the history of humanity. Until, of course, Jesus. But this man was great. He was a prophet. There hadn't been a prophet for 400 years. We'll come back to the moment. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel, ancient Israel, for 400 years. The last one was kind of Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament. Then John comes dressed as a prophet, actually dressed like Elijah. We'll come back to the moment. And he spoke like a prophet. He was tough. He was courageous. He was fearless. Thousands went out to him to be baptized, baptized by him, which was something new. Baptism is part of uh, Jewish practice. We can tell in sort of first century time, it's clear that Jews did baptise people, but they only baptised pagans who were converting to Judaism. And incidentally, they baptised the adults and the kids, the infant children of the family that were coming in to become Jews. And they did that to cleanse the family of paganism, of 
the, the, the stain of uh, being outside the people of God. But once the, the family were in the people of God, now I'm part of the Jewish community, any children born to them wouldn't be baptised because they were born to cleansed parents. But John comes along saying, Jew, be baptised. What? An extraordinarily new thing. The religious leaders, verse 19, go out to him to find out what's going on. Now, in a real sense, John the Baptist is a link between the Old Testament and the New. He's the link between the Old Testament prophetic tradition, all the leading up to, and the New, Jesus. He is the hinge between those pieces. Now, we don't notice him and he doesn't Pay, play much in our minds because we don't see, I, I, I'm, you may not see, we often don't see, how monumental the shift from Old Testament, Mosaic Covenant, to New Testament was. That we needed the, the last Old Testament prophet, the greatest, to anticipate and launch the new. And most of what John the Baptist says trades on Old Testament thought. In fact, it's very hard to understand this whole passage without Old Testament understanding. So, uh, for instance, the questions, verse 21, that the Jewish leaders ask him, are you the Elijah, are you the prophet, uh, and so on, who are They're all Old Testament ideas. Uh, John the Baptist's own identity, verse 23, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness, is an Old Testament quote. His statement there, verse 21, about the person of Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, trades on Old Testament ideas. And his comment there in verse 33 about baptism in the Holy Spirit trades on Old Testament ideas. And as I said earlier, you, there's lots of parts of the New Testament you can't understand properly without understanding the Old Testament. That one illustrates it very clearly, baptism in the Spirit. Who has heard of it? No, you've heard of the language of baptism of spirit. Many, many of you will have heard this language. It's part of a modern church movement called the Pentecostal movement where they uh, express the idea and it's part of their statements of faith uh, that uh, you, you can be a Christian, you can be a follower of Christ, but subsequent to conversion, uh, uh, separate to conversion, is a secondary experience called baptism of spirit where you're empowered for ministry and receive the gift of tongues. Um, now, that's a, a modern understanding of baptism of spirit. I want to make the point with you this morning that when you understand the language of baptism of spirit in its proper context, in its Old Testament setting, as John used it, you, you won't land there. You'll see a very different understanding of what's going on in these phrases. You cannot understand much of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. You can't understand John the Baptist without understanding the Old Testament. You can't understand what he said without... So... I need you to give me 10 minutes for a start. <laughs> I need you to give me 10 minutes of concentration. I want you to focus with me and do a bit of work on the Old Testament because I want to lay the background for this passage. We'll come back to the passage in around 10 minutes or so uh, and, uh, and I want to do a bit of work so that when we come back you'll understand it. So take a breath, settle in. Kind of slap yourself around. Uh, let's do this journey through the Old Testament. I've got to uh, slap someone else around. I saw someone doing that. Um, I'll, I'll take you back. There's three big pieces I want to show you. Let's go back. You ready? Genesis chapter 1. Not many more chapters to go. 
Genesis chapter 1. God creates the universe, and he creates it beautiful. He creates it very good. It puts humanity in the garden. He gives himself to them. in, But humanity in their pride think it's not enough. And so they rebel against their God. They betray their relationship with God, and sin enters the world. And sin destroys them, their relationships, the creation we live in, and our relationship with God. And that whole notion of sin then dominates the Bible from that point on. What do we do with human betrayal, pride, arrogance and sin? How can God deal with it? What do we do with it? That becomes the whole driver for what the Bible talks about, dealing with sin. How can Exodus chapter 33... Verse 20, how, no one can see God's face and live. He is too pure to even look upon sin. How do we then deal with this? Well, what emerges is one answer, the sacrificial system. God chooses a nation, the, the seed of Abraham, makes them into a great nation and gives them a sacrificial system, a series of sacrifices where they can pay or atone for sin. And these sacrifices happen daily in the temple. But there's one great day once a year called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The word atonement just means at one bringing to at one humanity and God. There's one great day, the Day of Atonement. It's described for us in Leviticus 16, where two animals are brought to the high priest. And he, in a symbolic gesture, lays his hands upon them and transfers, symbolically, transfers the sin of all the nation onto these animals. So they now receive human sin and guilt. One of them is sent off into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Have you heard that language? It's where we got it from. One sent off into the wilderness to take sin away from the nation. The other one is slaughtered. So that by the blood, the death of that animal, its blood shed, sin could be paid for. And it's interesting, in the book of Leviticus, those two events are regarded as the one event. The taking of sin away and the paying for sin. Now, the payment for sin happens in a substitute. So, so God in his holiness must punish sin, must judge sin, and the judgment of sin means death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of the substitute. So serious is sin. And this day of atonement happens year upon year upon year, teaching Israel that you cannot waltz into the presence of God with sin. It must be paid for in either you, death, or the substitute, death. But as the Old Testament goes on, something new emerges. It's the idea that the blood of bulls and goats aren't really adequate to take away the sin of humanity. And so a new figure emerges, one called a servant, the servant. He appears in Isaiah 53, the passage we read. A servant who would come, who would be despised and rejected, we would esteem him not. He would be one one who took up our sufferings and our pain. But more explicitly, the text says this, He will be punished by God for our transgressions. He will be crushed by God for our iniquities. 
the punishment that brings us peace will be laid on him. By his wounds, we will be healed. Do you see the substitution language? It's all about the sacrificial system not being adequate, finally. And finally, one great servant will come to achieve what that pointed to. And in himself, God will deal with sin. And so, a new covenant is established. Jeremiah chapter 31. A new covenant depended entirely on God's gift to us, where sin will be finally gone and dealt with, and he will remember our sins no more. There will be forgiveness. So the old covenant was the covenant of works, that if you, if you got your act together and turned over a new leaf and became better and better and better and kept as many laws as you could, you might one day make it. That was a covenant that didn't work because it didn't deal with sin. And so God brings a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness. First thing, he deals with sin. It's judgment. Second thing, alongside this is another piece that humans might not only be forgiven, but changed. That there might come in the future a new intimacy, a return, if you like, to Eden, or better than Eden, where we could walk with God again, we could be in his presence. Back in Moses' day, Moses is the great author of much of the, old, the first books of the Old Testament, uh, he gives expression to this. Do you remember Moses? Moses was one of the only men who could come into the presence of God so-called and in the tent of meeting he would be with God and he would come out of that experience of intimacy with God with his face glowing and he'd wear a veil to hide the fading glory that he experienced in being in that context. Well, there was an incident it recorded for us in Numbers chapter 11 where God um, poured out his spirit upon 70 other elders in the camp uh, and Moses' protege comes to him and says, whoa, stop them doing that. You're the man, not them. And Moses says this, I wish that all God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them that he wouldn't be alone with his experience of intimacy with God, that all God's people would experience the Spirit of God in their lives. Now, Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, God says, uh, expresses it like this, he says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments. God has this deep desire that his people would be different. They'd be changed from the heart. They'd have a new heart a new spirit, so that there'd be this, this longing now to please God and not rebel against him, not be stubborn and hard-hearted. The hope was for God to not just be with a nation, but to be with each of us internally, so close that he dwelt in our hearts. In fact, Isaiah 32 says there's a day coming when the spirit would be poured out, Isaiah 44 says God promises to pour out his spirit on his people. Isaiah 39 says so that they might now know God, have new hearts, be soft-hearted towards God. And then becomes very explicit and clear a chapter in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, which says 
God promises a day where he would save his people and change them. He would take out their heart of stone, their rebellious stubborn heart, give them a heart of flesh and put his own spirit in them to move them to follow his decrees and keep his commandments. You see, first, the Old Testament has this problem of sin to deal with and it needs to be punished and forgiveness needs to be established. Second, There's a problem that sin has in the human heart that it corrupts and pollutes and destroys us and it needs to be cleansed from us, that the power of sin might be removed, that we might be different and God's spirit might dwell in us and have an intimacy. Third, there was a hope that God would come and do this, but that he wouldn't just turn up and do it, but he would send messengers to prepare his coming. And the key one prophesied in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, the key one prophesied in the Old Testament was Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great prophet from earlier centuries, uh, come and gone. But Malachi, God gives Malachi to say that he, God will send his messenger before his great day of the Lord comes, when he comes to cleanse and purify. And one will come, the Elijah. But you get this also mentioned in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, that a messenger would come, a voice preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh, God, back to his world to rescue it. And this coming of God back to his world will be associated with the coming of a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, one day God will raise up a prophet like me, listen to him. But you also get the coming of a king, the Messiah. Now this is big, but that king who comes, when you look through the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 42 and so on, when you look through the book of Isaiah, that king who comes will be a spirit king. He'll be one upon whom the Spirit of God rests, which empowers the King to proclaim the good news. And this new King, the Spirit King, would bring forgiveness and new birth and the pouring out of the Spirit upon his people. Do you see? There's the Old Testament. It's massive. The anticipation that's built up through the book, through the series of books, written by different authors. The hope that finally, sin which has broken the world and corrupted relationships with each other, with God, would be finally dealt with. That its penalty would be paid. That its power would be broken. By a king, a prophet, the Messiah, who would be a spirit king such that there's a servant who brings substitutionary payment. All of these themes come together. You're with me? There is the Old Testament. So come now to John 1. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now why did they send to ask who he was? because there had not been a prophet for 400 years. And Luke chapter 3 tells us that the word of God now came to John, 
a prophet arises, dressed like Elijah, eating stuff like Elijah ate, bees and honey, extraordinary description of John the Baptist, out in the wilderness like Elijah. And so they're going, is this the time? Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. So they go to ask him, who are you? And he's doing a new thing, baptising Jews. Now they don't go out to get baptised, but they go out to ask him. And verse 20, John the Baptist doesn't fail to confess freely and say, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the king. Well, who are you then? Are you the Elijah? Do you see why they asked that question? Because they're waiting for the Elijah. He's the forerunner for the great end times. Are you the Elijah? He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Now, notice it's not just a prophet, but the prophet, Deuteronomy 18. He says, no, I'm not that. And they suddenly, well, who are you? Give us something to take back. Why didn't John just say, I'm John? Um, But anyway, he leaves them hanging. And verse 23, he replies with the words of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 40, I am the voice. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the paths for Yahweh, for God. Now notice this. Of all the labels he could have taken on, he only takes on the label of, I'm a voice. I'm just a voice. Now why? There's some puzzles here that let me just spend a moment on. Um, Jesus in Matthew 11 actually says he is the Elijah. He's the greatest human who's ever been born. Why, why does John not take on any of those mantles, but just chooses the most humble one, I'm just a voice? Well, because, I'd suggest, he is so captivated by the vision of one greater than him, that in context, he's a nothing. That's what he says there in verse 27. Um, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. There's one coming who comes after me, verse 30, who has surpassed me because he was before me. I'm anticipating the coming of Yahweh. And John is so captivated by the scale and magnitude of Jesus that he can't see himself. He doesn't notice how great he is. And there's a lesson for us, brothers and sisters. See, how do you end up with arrogance and humility? How do you end up with arrogance and pride? Um, This will give you humility. Um, How do you end up with arrogance? The key, one of the key things in our pride is the way we build ourselves up is by looking at other people around us who inevitably are, you'll find someone lower down the tree than you. Just look here each Sunday and you'll find someone you can make yourself feel better by. But... uh, we look at each other and we go, yeah, no, 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 at least I'm not, at least I'm not, and you make yourself, oh, gossip works like this too. One of the keys for gossip in friend circles, the reason I talk about someone else not being very good and gossip about it is to actually give myself place and position. When you compare yourself to Jesus, we've got nothing. I've got nothing to boast in. When you compare yourself to the towering person of Jesus, you don't even think about yourself anymore. That was John the Baptist. I'm just a voice speaking 
preparing the way. There was never any room for him to be arrogant, never any room for him to even care about himself. He just didn't even notice himself and that's a great place to be. It's liberating. Look to Jesus. John then takes the Isaiah passage as his sense of self. The greatest man sees himself pointing to Jesus. Then look verse 29, what he says about Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, walking towards him in the crowd. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what a statement. Here is a man, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. All the sin, all the evil of thousands of years, not just in Israel, but the whole world, will be dealt with by this man. All all the hatred and abuse and murder and greed and selfishness that's accumulated over centuries in all our societies, John says, this man is going to take it away. He's going to cleanse the world and repair it. And he's going to do it as the Lamb of God. Now, if you were there and you'd gone through the Old Testament background like we had, as Jews had lived in that kind of Old Testament world, and you'd heard your great Old Testament prophet say, here's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, what would be triggered in your mind? The sacrificial system. Perhaps even Isaiah 53. Because the servant who bears in himself the guilt and sin of others is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And these allusions connect so powerfully back in the Old Testament. And what you would see John saying, hear John saying, is the fulfilment. All our hopes, all our desires to have sin dealt with that was anticipated by the sacrificial system, anticipated by the Day of Atonement, anticipated in the Passover event. Do you remember the Passover event where the blood was sprinkled so that the angel of death would pass over? All of that is fulfilled. This is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus himself says as much. Jesus himself says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. Language out of Isaiah 53. He says in John 12, unless a grain of seed falls to the ground, it remains a single seed, but if it dies, it produces a harvest. He said this to show what kind of death he would die. A substitutionary death, a a satisfaction death, a death that creates life in others. And when he died, he died at Passover time. Exactly when, well, largely when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus, the true Lamb of God, was being sacrificed. The symbol has now become reality. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by being the final great sacrifice. You know, the New Testament is full of this, the wonder of it. John, this author says in the book of Revelation that we are redeemed by his blood to be a kingdom of priests, to serve him forever. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was once offered to bear the sins of many. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
This is all language straight out of the Old Testament. You know, this morning, if you have any sense that you need reconciliation with God, if you have any fear of the holiness of God and your sin, if you have any insight into that, your only hope is here, in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. But there is one name by which you can be saved. God himself comes amongst us in the person of his Son. If you have any sense of the holiness of God in your sin, there is an answer, Jesus. If you don't have any sense of that, can I urge you this morning to see that God is who he says he is. You cannot just stand in his presence. He cannot look upon sin. None of us have any hope except that a substitute dies in our place except that God lays upon him the iniquity of us all. You have no other hope except God becoming man in the person of Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Come to him and find forgiveness. But John has more to say. Verse 32, or verse 31, uh, I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that I might reveal him to Israel. Now, how does all of that work? Let me explain it to you. John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptise you with water said to me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now, do you remember our Old Testament background? Who was the one upon whom the Spirit would rest in the book of Isaiah? The king. The seed of David, the root of the stump of Jesse, the one who would have the power of the Spirit resting on him to preach the good news to those enslaved and captivated, the king. And John says, God gave me to know that when I baptised, I would see the Spirit come upon this one to mark him as the Isaiah king, the one upon whom the Spirit rests, the fulfilment of the one we've been waiting for. And so the Spirit descends on Jesus. And John is given to now witness and testify, I've seen it, he is the one. And this one will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus comes, the Spirit King comes to baptise in the Holy Spirit? If you've got all your Old Testament background, it will take you back to Moses in Numbers chapter 11 and the desire to have the Spirit of God dwell in all people. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the hope that our hearts would be transformed, Ezekiel 36, and the desire of God to give us a new heart, take our heart of stone and give us his own Spirit. It'll take you back to all of this language to see that baptism in the Spirit is not about speaking in tongues. Oh my goodness. Baptism of the Spirit is not subsequent to conversion. It's not an add-on. It's not an extra. It's the heart of Christianity. You see, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He will pay the penalty of sin. There's now no more condemnation. But the Spirit King will come to bring the new age of the Spirit and baptise, immerse us in the person of God's Spirit so that we can be remade, have a new heart, 
have God dwell in, within us, like Moses experienced, beyond what Moses experienced, have a new intimacy with God. That's what baptism in the Spirit's about. It's John chapter 3. It's about being born again, being born again by the Spirit. This is not subsequent to conversion. It's not other than conversion. This is another way of talking about conversion. To be now in the Spirit, in the age of the Spirit, in relationship with God, in a new covenant, remade. Cleansed, renewed. God's final solution to sin, John says, has arrived. And he's the solution to the penalty of sin and the power of sin and will bring a new presence of God in our lives, anticipating the age to come. This is monumental. This is the turning of history. And John, the last Old Testament prophet, is given to testify to this moment, powerfully. Do you see what this says to us? If you're here amongst us today and you do sense an alienation between you and God, here is the one who can fix it. If you sense a brokenness in your life, that life is busted up, you've got a mess, you don't know how to get it, you've got, you're living with baggage and, and addictions and you keep doing things that wreck everything, God has got the answer for you. It's come to Jesus and find the penalty of sin taken and the power of sin broken, that you can live a new life. Now, many of you feel these twin problems. Some of you only feel the second one, the problem of brokenness in your life. You sense that very vividly. And it is interesting, as a culture, we are very clear about the brokenness of life. Did you know that self-help books have exploded in the last decade? Uh, it's the biggest selling kind of book you can have, self-help. Now, what's the key to self-help? Self. But here's the thing. Look at the person... Well, look at the people around you. Would you trust your life to any of them? Do you think they can make your life better? Well, they're looking at you and saying the same thing. And the point here is, why are you looking at your own life when everyone else realises it's a dud? you got nothing. What you need is not self-help. Forgive me, but what you need is not self-help. What you need is rescue. You need help from outside. You need God to send a rescuer, the Saviour who can take away the sin of the world, the one who can baptise with the Holy Spirit and fill you with his own presence and bring a new strength into your life to help you change and break the power of sin. Brothers and sisters, we have two great needs. Penalty, power. Third, the presence of God. And Jesus solves it all. Do you know, this passage brings to us again the magnitude of who Jesus is. He is the Lord of heaven and earth that the Old Testament was waiting to come. He is Yahweh come back to his world to fix it. And John was given to testify to that. But pastorally, well, no, that was pastoral. More particularly for you, he comes to you to change you, 
to bring you freedom from the penalty of sin and bring you freedom from the power of sin. If you come to Jesus, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God, by his Spirit, is now at work in your lives to give you a new strength and a new power. Walk in his strength. Do you know, I, uh, I read a very wonderful testimony in recent times from a Muslim man. Let me read it to you. When I first became a Christian many years ago, my life was filled with many dirty things that I knew were displeasing to God. My problem was that I didn't have the power to change. Even when I wanted to change, I tried to change things in my life a lot of different times and a lot of different ways, but nothing ever lasted. I kept going back to living the way I'd always lived. However, the day I was saved and Christ became real to me, my heart radically changed. I immediately learned that God was willing to give me both the desire and the power to change my life. He's talking about the baptism in the Spirit that comes to all believers upon conversion, where you enter the age of the Spirit. Now, it's true that you will carry around with you this body of death. There will be ups and downs. Anyone who says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in us. We'll continue to struggle. We're in this age. But we have a new principle at work in us. Work out your salvation. Lean not on your own strength, but walk in the power of the Spirit to begin to... Have you got addictions that you just can't break? Pray to the God who has given His Son that you can begin to change and be transformed. The Lord of heaven and earth has come to free us. And what a power He works amongst us. Let's, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate the glory and greatness of who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the great fulfilment of the hope of the Spirit that he might immerse us in the life of God's very Spirit. We thank you that he is all of this. And we pray, please, that you would help us, uh, draw us to come to you to find the penalty of sin dealt with, and the power of sin broken in our lives. Let us now no longer live under the slavery to sin. Please strengthen us to be different, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.